be diving into, well, depravity. And uh, today's show is from here to depravity, where the West, where the quest for pu- for purity lost its way. Goodness, I'm tongue-tied today. And uh, thanks to those of you who sent donations during the week, Lee, Ian, Jonathan, Richard, etc., for your support of the show. Thanks to everybody who hits the Super Chat today. The best way for me to see your comments is if you post a Super Chat or your, your questions for for Mr. Jones today. And uh, so post up your Super Chats if you'd like to... Uh, ask a question during the show. Of course, Steve is really good at replying to emails, etc. Really uh, interesting week, to say the least, all the stuff going on, all of the, the lies and spin going on. I posted something today about uh, Nazi propaganda and how they use slogans to essentially control the population through emotion, and we see so much of that going on today. Just thought I would mention that. If people are interested, they can find that on my Facebook page. But uh, so much propaganda going on out there, and even today's topic delves into propaganda in sort of a way because of the division between, well, what did we... What did you call it in your email here? Let me see if I can find that. You had said, uh, oh, let's see. Where where did it disappear to? Uh, reality versus, where? wait, where did it go? I know I had it here. Oh, goodness. I had it here just a little bit you ago. Want, you want me to take over a little bit? Yeah, sure. You go ahead. Well, this, this discussion actually started as an email. Uh, and one of the listeners, let me read his quote. He, he's actually quoting from Carol Quigley. I don't know if many people are aware of who Carol Quigley was, but he was a Harvard historian that wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope. And he was also uh, Bill Clinton's professor at Georgetown. Yeah. Uh, well, and he's, he's kind of quoted by a lot of liberals a lot of, like, because they seem to think that he's got the admits to a, a conspiracy of some sorts. Uh, but that's not what I, we're really interested in here. Um, the, let me read the quote out of Tragedy and Hope. Opposed to this Western view of the world and the nature of man, there was from the beginning another opposed view of both which received its most explicit formulation by the Persian Zoroaster in the seventh century BC and came into the Western tradition as a minor heretical theme. It came in through the Persian influence and the Hebrews, especially during the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, the 6th century BC, and it came in more fully through the Greek rationalist tradition from Pythagoras to Plato. This latter tradition encircled the early Christian religion, giving rise to many of the controversies that were settled in the early church councils, continuing on in the many heresies that extended through history from the Arians, the Manichaeans, Luther, Calvin, and the Jansenists. And the question goes on, explaining the difference between what Quigley calls a war between orthodoxy and Puritanism. And so what prodded this, I emailed him back and I sent you a copy of the email on where the the listener wanted this kind of explained. How does purity, an obsession with purity, end up corrupting society? And how does it? How do we go from there? Well, the way I see it is that there's really two strains that you have to kind of look at. 
One is the philosophical strain and one's kind of the moral strain. Uh, I would go back to the beginning. Most scholars would say that the most important part of the Bible is the beginning of John, which unfortunately is poorly translated. It's, it, as we know, we're fans of the Logos. In the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh. Really should be translated in the beginning was the Logos and the word was made Sarks. Sarks is a word that really has, doesn't have a counterpart in English. It loosely means flesh, but it really means something very sinewy, bloody, uh, almost a disgusting kind of, of reality. And so the word I believe was put in there specifically to challenge this idea of purity, that life could be this pure, we could achieve a pure life, just clean everything up. And so there, there's, there's this idea that, which I think is very prevalent today, where you see you know, a, a form of iconoclasm reaping up again, where the early church had to contest the iconoclast, which tried to get rid of all the icons, all the imagery, all the different realities of Christianity in favor for a, a pristine sanitary type of religion, which is kind of what's going to down today with the, the Marxist influence on society. But in a sort of spun way, and you you had written it, by the time of Christ, this debate in, evolved into a debate between truth, reality, morality versus dualism, solipsism, and liberality. Right. I think what we have to do is, I've got a little quote here. There's a, in the, in the church particularly, I don't know how other Logos teachers teach it, but the church kind of used to go back to an argument between Heraclitus and, and Parmenides. Parmenides, let me start with Heraclitus. If you look up the word logos, usually you'll find that it was a word coined by Heraclitus. Heraclitus was looking at a world of complete change and in the, he reasoned that in a world of complete change, there has to be some permanence of some sort. That permanence um, would have to be a, a kind of what Aristotle determined as a the thing that kicked the universe off, the, the, the unmoved mover type thing. But on the other side of the ar argument was this Parmenides, whereas Heraclitus was portrayed as someone who believed everything was changed. Parmenides believed, at least he's been portrayed as something that believed nothing changed. Um, but I think that's where kind of this, this argument is kind of selling both sides short. So what I did way back is I tried to find the beginning of Logos doctrine. And I think if you really are honest about it, you'd have to say that the argument actually begins with a poem by Parmenides. And it's his poem is called The Way of Truth. Uh, let me just read a portion of it very quickly. It is necessary to say and think that being is, nothingness is not. I order you to declare these things. In fact, you'll begin with this first way of inquiry. Avoid then that invented by mortals who know nothing, men with two, two truths. Uncertainty as fact guides in their hearts the wandering thought, and they are dragged stupid and all obtuse, astonished, confused by the races. For them, being and non-being are regarded as the same. Things and not are being the same thing. 
So what he's really, I think what you see here is the emergence of the twofold truth where you, you, there's nothing to be distinguished between yes and no, being and not being. And it's envisioned, I think, what he's criticizing is these people envision this perfect world where there's no error and there's no falsity. Uh, and what he discovers is really the principle of non-contradiction, which we're all very aware of, uh, is sort of the litmus test for understanding what truth is and what isn't true. Right, and in, under the trivium method studies, a contradiction is always, without exception, a liar and error, and there are no contradictions in nature. And most people, when they say when they see a contradiction, they throw their arms up in the air and they say, opinions are like expletive and you can't know the truth. Where in reality, if you grasp that a contradiction is a lie or an error, it tells you where to dig deeper until there are no more contradictions and until there's nothing left to no, no material, no general grammar, no who, what, where, and when to go through to find any more information that could invalidate or validate, as the case may be, the position. And when you have that epiphany or that aha moment, you've arrived at the point of truth where there are no more contradictions. I, I would go back, really, there's an argument whether Pythagoras or Plato came up with this, and it's, it's the theory of, or the principle of non-contradiction to me is a little bit confusing for a lot of people. Usually the argument I get is, well, you have white and black, what about gray? And that entirely misses the point. When I, most of my writings, I retranslated the principle of contradiction to simply be both sides of a contradiction cannot both be true. Correct. It's, 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 and it, you kind of avoid all this stumbling spots. But the birth of philosophy really goes back to Plato. And Plato took all these principles of geometry and created, decided that he, by using geometry and measurements and numbers and that kind of thing, that he envisioned this perfect reality of being where there was, you know, because numbers don't really have anything to do with meaning at all. So after he envisioned this, he envisioned, as I explained in the letter, a simple mathematical formula. If A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C. So Aristotle picked up on that and decided that he could do the same thing with Socrates and morality. So Socrates says if Socrates is mortal, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal type thing. But the detractors looked at, a, I believe, a writing by Plato where he starts looking at the absurdity of his own teaching and that it's leading to this idealized reality in the philosopher's mind. And so he writes a, a, what's arguably a tract that he's writing to the point of absurdity. But a lot of people have picked up on this and think that that's the side he advocated was this idealized uh, that underneath reality, underneath everything that there is, is we should approach this thing of this one mind where reality is all illusion. We ourselves are kind of an illusion. We're just elements of this one mind thinking. 
And so you end up with modern philosophy after years and years and years where we're trying to recreate this sublime um, utopian thing, which, no, which can't be. It's, it's, it's argued against on every front. And that's where people like Aldous Huxley, et cetera, come in promoting their dystopian utopia or whatever, and that's where Karl Marx stems out of. But I'm glad you brought up mathematics. Nearly a decade ago, and some of the listeners may remember this, it was one of the, well, not one of the first, it was episode number 111 and 112 of the Gnostic Media podcast. I interviewed this guy, David Harriman, The Philosophic Corruption of Physics and the Logical Leap. And in it, and in his 11-hour, 12-hour, whatever it was, uh, lecture, he goes in deep into explaining how philosophy got in and corrupted mathematics and all of this stuff. And then from there, we get quantum physics, which allows up to 12 contradictory views to be held at once. And he goes through and exposes all of this based on, uh, who was it? I think it was Kant that he, uh, that he targeted as the main progenitor of these false ideas that seeped into mathematics. Yeah. Well, Kant is kind of a controversial guy anyhow. Um, there was a book on how the modern era was kind of developed by the Scots, Scots. Uh, but Kant was being argued against by Thomas Reed, and it, Kant sort of ends up being an enemy from by all sides. <laughs> he sort of gets everything wrong. Uh, what what I find is that the whole idea of, of John's chapter on the Logos eventually gets picked up by the early Hermeticists and they write it in the Corpus Hermeticum where they again bring up this idea of this utopian ideal. Uh, and this, what makes it difficult I think for most people is that the utopian ideal has both moral implications but this, it's a mathematical ideal. Uh, and we don't see that in this modern day, we've kind of eliminated the quest for meaning and replaced. I mean, most astronomers these days don't don't figure out cosmology with their telescopes. They do it with the slide rule and the computer, um, as it's that that has been the evolution of science. The biggest problem, I think, though, is going back when when you see what Quigley described as the Persian influence of dualism you see that picked up again and again and again. In, in Christianity, the dualists at that time were called the Manichaeans. And they were sort of the Zoroastrian version of Christianity. The, you, what you can do is you can find different tracts and things speaking against the Manichaeans, but the real, there's a real dicey issue here that most people don't understand is that by the time you end up in the fifth or sixth century, Platonism is being shut down entirely throughout the world as a heresy. What happens in, by the time you end towards the end of the Middle Ages, the, they're rediscovering a lot of these writings. And the one writing that sort of messes everything up is St. Augustine refers to Platonism as the next closest thing to Christianity. 
where it fails though is that the Platonism that Augustine is talking about is really the middle Platonism of Aristotle. And modern scholars pretty much miss the whole point that in the same book, he condemns her, hermeticism as the devil's advocate. So what happens is these scholars are going back and they, they're, they're kind of using Plato to re-inaugurate this occult hermetic uh, by virtue of Augustine. So um, let me see if I've got something here. There, there's an episode in history that seldom gets talked about, and specific, specifically in the church. The, there was an early heresy called Pelagianism. And for some reason, modern scholars, especially fundamentalists, like to bring, and Protestants too, like to bring up Pelagius as being an exemplar for what's really wrong with the church and or what was wrong with Catholicism and that Pelagius is portrayed as somebody who uh, was trying to achieve salvation through works, which would be something Luther would have condemned. But he's quoting uh, Augustine and Augustine is, Augustine is condemning, he's the first to co condemn Pelagius but in order to do it, he, get, he kind of burns all his writings. He, there's, there's nothing left of Pelagius. And all we can do is go back to Augustine's own writings and say, well, what really was going on? What you find, what really was going on is a debate over what was sin. And if you go and see originally, my, my understanding of sin in a logo sense is sin is what the church once called the veil of tears, that you, you have a way of comprehending reality, but that reality is always deficient as to what reality really is. They call this the egocentric predicament, but the church never denied reality. They just said it's something man has to struggle through to get it right. Augustine never was really raised as a Manichaean and it was only at the proddings of his mother that he was living a kind of a, the life of a recluse that he should become a Christian. Once he did become a Christian, he understood Manichaeanism very well, but everybody gets the, the, his argument wrong, and it's buried in this Pelagian argument. So what the Pelagians were really accusing Augustine of is never totally leaving his, Pelag his Manichaean roots. His Manichaean, and this surfaces in the idea that Augustine, rather than seeing sin as this falling away from the Logos, he sees that there's writings that are, get appealed to by these people that Augustine understands sexuality as sinful, which he's really adequately portraying the Manichaeans and, and the, what eventually became the Cathars. But where this ties together, I think, and this is a very hard thing to wrap your mind around, what the Pelagians were really arguing is that if sex is a sin, why, how do you maintain reality? How do you maintain posterity? How do you maintain uh, the human race if nobody can have sex? So what happens is a sexual argument gets kind of shuttered in the bottom of Christianity and never really has an adequate solution once you get on that path. So what happens in most of these heresies is a, a, a very subtle, bizarre argument in that they're really trying to do with away with reality. 
And they come to the conclusion that the best way of doing away with reality is deplete the number of human beings on the earth and cleaning them up. And they feel that at some point in time, if you get rid of all the souls, none of the souls, the souls will by necessity all return to this one being of, of Plato. So what you see is this kind of connection between the return to this platonic perfection by virtue of cleaning up reality. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of is what sits in the back of every, you, you, you take a seminary course and they're going to tell you all the different forms of heresy, but really in my mind, all the heresies kind of break down to this one denial of reality in favor of this, this idealistic utopian uh, life, which is ultimately devours reality. It devour, not only reality, it devours free will, it devours thought, it devours reason. In, in the process, all in favor of approaching this hypothetical uh, society, which we're in the midst of today, which eventually just eats itself. Where we have, well, the the environment, so-called. What are they? What have they remarketed it to now? Global warming it used yeah. to be the new ice age when I was a kid. Then it was the new. Oh, then it was global warming. Now it's climate change. And, well, everybody uh, from the you know everybody and, from the Islamists to the Cathars, uh, all the way through. As Carol Quigley rightly notes, they were all obsessed with Puritanism. And, and so what happens today, we, we kind of think as Puritans as being fundamentalists and fundamentalists as being conservatives. And so conservatives are kind of protected from this whole argument, but it really doesn't slice in the political fashion most people would want to see it. It's, uh, you almost have to see as, you know, what's new today was old tomorrow and uh, the, the Puritans were sort of new agers for their time period. It's only now that we look at them as being old fashioned or something like that. Well, yeah. And then you and I had discussed last time you were on two weeks ago that uh, the Puritans weren't really Christians per se. They mostly worshiped the uh, Torah or the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Yeah. I mean, that's the, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around what the it's, what you have to do is the Cathars were originally condemned in the writing of the Nicene Creed, but most scholars aren't sure what the Cathars really were at that point. Uh, but I believe that you can trace them back to that. But what they're constantly obsessed with is this idea that it really is a dualistic lifestyle. If you read the the old tracts and the, the you know the, the Inquisition gets a bad name because they Everybody thinks the Inquisition killed millions and millions of people, which is total nonsense. It's total nonsense, and they were really trying. What, what to, did you What did you say was the total? Like a few thousand? I believe that it's three. Yeah, three, at most it was three thousand people, and yeah. most of those people were were undercover agents trying to undermine. It, it, Islam had taken over Spain, correct? And when the when the Christians took took it back, most of the people that fell into the you have to think of a society. I always think of Al Capone and things like that, where they couldn't get them on normal stuff because they didn't have police in the way we do now. So they got them as being heretics. 
Uh, right. Well, they're, they're, it, they're, well, they're basically people that were trying to undermine the empire. And then as far as the witch hunts, as they were called, most of that happened along the border of uh, Germany. Was it Germany and France or something like that? But it was mostly along the border of Germany. And when you read the official Catholic Church documents on that, they were actually trying to stop the witch hunts. And then, of course, hundreds of years later, the Catholic Church is blamed for murdering millions of witches and pagans and all of this nonsense. And then, no, the, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was also going to add, you know, one of the things that I hear severely misunderstood by the left and anti-Christians, et cetera, is, well, what about the Crusades? The Christians killed millions of people. Well, what happened there was you had King Jan of Poland, who united the armies of Europe to drive the Muslims out of Europe, who had killed millions of people and had taken millions of slaves and this was finally europe uniting to push the muslims out of out of europe it and, it actually gets worse than that is that the you, you think of society now pretty much runs on energy and oil especially you know formerly of the middle east and so it wasn't uncommon up until the recent time to have blockades of oil to, to, to collapse our society. But back in that day, Islam wanted to collapse Christianity. So they had blockades on paper and spices. So the real cause of the Middle Ages was not that they were stupid or anything like that. It's that if you don't have paper, you don't have books. And if you don't have spices, you don't have any way of preserving meat. It, and without spices and paper, the society necessarily falls into a type of collapse. So the Crusades were basically a battle, a battle to open up the trade lines to the Middle East so that they could get spices and paper back again. Interesting. And there was there were five hundred or more inv- Islamic invasions into Europe, and then there were what twelve Crusades to push the Muslims out. Well, not all the, that's kind of a misnomer too. Not all the crusades were against Muslims. In fact, one crusade was against the Eastern Orthodox Church. Interesting. Uh, that really, that we won't get in tonight, there may be a future episode, but that whole ep- escapade leads to the, the loss of the relics of Christianity, the, which were in the beginning of the Cathars, and I believe also the, the loss of the Shroud of Turin at that point of time. The, but what does start emerging is this group called the Cathars, which were obsessed with purity. Uh, they banned sex. They, um, they had women priests. They, they did a lot of bizarre things. But the Catholic Church actually treated them quite mercifully. They gave them uh, licenses to preach if they wanted to preach. But they, they kind of bracketed that with the right to debate them in an open stage, in an open forum. Most of the surviving documents that I can find with the Cathars and the Inquisition or the Catholic Church trying to save them because they, they, would, they would get into a debate with the Cathars and often if somebody, and you got to sort of envision a world where we don't have the modern system of justice, that they would, on, the episodes specifically is they offhanded kind of threaten the people if you don't come to our way of thinking 
we could burn you at the stake. Well, the Cathars got up, got up and jumped into the fire and burned themselves. And that became a kind of a habit that the Cathars over time more or less willingly killed themselves in, as, a, as, a, as a kind of a sacrifice to this perfect unity that they were, that life, to, you understand, to, to a person that where this perfect unity is nirvana or utopia, this world means nothing to them. So to, to die like a terrorist might now is, is your, your path to salvation. Right. Interesting. And so the Catholic Church actually tried to stop that. As, they tried to stop that, yes. As they did the witch hunts, which has all been spun into attacks. They tried the to stop it where they where they the Inquisition's main focus was basically undercover agents acting mostly Jewish, acting to topple the, the, the Spanish king and monarchy. And that's pretty much accepted fact right now. Most people, I mean, the problem with all this, I, th I think going into all these debates is that history is taught very poorly in our schools these days. They're, it's all designed to lead to a specific outcome. And we don't really treat everything from Newton to Galileo to uh, going all the way back with any, any real honesty. It's all designed to lead them into communism and socialism and to attack Western culture. And history. Well, even the flat earth debate was a totally made up in the 1800s. It, it, nobody believed the earth was flat. And which it, I, it, it, which it, I had found in my research as well, that that was made up. Yeah, it, it's the problem as I see it is, again, going back to the end of the Middle Ages, you have this rediscovery of text starting to come back into Western civilization. It, it's kind of misportrayed in that we were completely illiterate. We didn't have any books and so they all show up. But what really in fact happens, the books were becoming scarce. We had them. What's more accurate I think is that we were losing the ability to translate them accurately. And when we started getting more accurate translations, it created kind of a, a kind of mix up of what the real right way was and what wasn't. So you have this under, you know, a lot of times the Catholic church takes a lot of heat for stuff. In fact, I just ordered a book on that. Um, but in reality, I think to be honest, the Catholic church always had kind of an inner working, uh, if, a deep state, if you will, that it was always trying to undermine it from the inside internally. And that even worked its way through science. So getting back to this topic of from here to depravity, where does this history of philosophy go from here? It's, I, I think the thing that shocked me originally, this was a long time ago, but the similarities between what the Nazis were doing and the New Age movement are striking if in for anybody wants to look at it. it. Again, it's this obsession. I always think of the Star Trek episode where, what was it, Nomad, the, uh, the probe that was sent out with the idea of sterilization, and it just wants to get rid of everything. So it's, it, the motto becomes sterilize, 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 where the Nazis wanted to sterilize the Jews 
now you have people wanting to sterilize the Trump supporters and, you know. Right. Well, and not only that, but the left is generally heavily caught up in veganism, etc. And so were the Nazis. Which deprives the brain of essential fats and cholesterol. The brain is about 77% cholesterol. And as is the reproductive system, ironically. And so going back to Plato, there's, I think it was Plato's Republic that has a section about quelling the population through veganism. And uh, who is it? Will Durant, I think, has a a thing on on that uh, scene in his in his book, what is it, The History of Philosophy or something like that in his chapter on Plato. But you often hear these vegans going around talking about how they're spiritually evolving and they're, you know, they're evolving into this new being by being vegans, which in reality is fat deprivation and cholesterol deprivation causing hallucinations to make them have that. And furthermore, you see these young vegan women hitting menopause as early as age 21 now. I used to think it was 29. Now I've had to eat that and roll it back to 21. But because the reproductive system is so caught up or is so based on fats and cholesterol. So to my knowledge, the theory of evolution and Darwinism and Thomas Henry Huxley's promotion of all of that is that evolution happens over time. You don't evolve into this different species or whatever, you know, And it, but if you're no longer even able to have children, nothing is actually evolving. So they even take Darwinism, et cetera, and flip it on its head. Right. What I, if I could, if I may for a minute, I'd like to back up now and bring science forward to where we are in morality, because that's sort of another, another version of this going back to Plato. What happened as in the, about the 11th century or so, Platonism was starting to vie, not just from a moral standpoint, but from a scientific standpoint. And so you've, you've got probably the, the most important person I'm finding in history, I think, that's been underplayed is a by, guy by the name of Robert Grosstest. And it, if you do any research on him, you'll find out the modern scientific era really began with him around 1100s, I believe it was, that we kind of give people like Karl Popper and Newton the credit for developing the scientific theory. But if you look into Robert Grosstest, there was nothing that they discovered that Grosstest hadn't done. Grosstest inspired Albert the Great, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Roger Bacon, all these different groups of people uh, to, to create what eventually became scholasticism. But underneath that was this under this movement that really purity of mathematics was the ideal form. So by the time you get to Kant, you really proceed, you, you really have to go to, to Descartes. Oddly enough, what I'm finding is all these people are curious about the rainbow and spectrums and how light is produced and what, what allows light to, to refract and all these different things. 
And they're taking all these different things, but one side wants to see it as an exemplar of reality. The other side sees it as this mathematical perfection. So you see people like Descartes and Galileo, not that they weren't doing great things on their own, but they're constantly trying to undermine with mathematics, the Aristotelian logos way of looking at things. So there, there's kind of this conspiracy of thought underneath where they feel if we can just produce the right, the right scientific experiments, we can undermine society with a, this idealistic point of view. Uh, Galileo is, for instance, is given credit as finding out this, this producing the solar centric theory, even though Copernicus, a Catholic priest had discovered it and maintained it years before him. Uh, but the whole thing was using mathematics as they, they saw this going back to Aristotle. If Aristotle can appeal to mathematics as a form of logic, then they can just abandon Aristotle altogether and, and have this pure mathematical reality, which isn't a reality at all. I think that ends up in the modern era where you have quantum physics and Einstein producing, purposely producing contradictory elements in uh, physics that you can't just can't wrap your mind around. It, and so in, it, in effect, it, for, it's a proof of non-contradiction in the mind of modernists, which ultimately collapses reason itself. And so, you know, without reason, without logic, we end up seeing the depravity in society. You know, a couple of weeks right. ago, we did a show on uh, how the crucifixion led up to the Nazis and all of this stuff leading into them trying to, what, purify their society, uh, scapegoat. Yeah, you have a pattern that arises always is that it's kind of always a debate over rules. Uh, and truth implies a certain amount of basic rules. What happens, and you see it in the Pharisees, well, if we're going to get rid of the rules and replace it with a dialectic of sorts, yeah, we've gotten rid of the absolutes of truth, but now you start pouring into that all these finicky kind of hundreds and hundreds of rules that are work one way one time another way another time one person has to allow one set of rules the other person can ignore that and do another it and it's sort of what happens is out of this i think where you end up with maybe not the perfect society you have clear clear rules they're minimal but they're decent rules in replacing it with the idea that you can have an infinite number of rules but somehow that's more compassionate And so the left is always uh, arguing the moral high ground through depravity. Right, right. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. It's just an, I wish they would see it's an ancient argument. And to really see the fallacy of this, you really have to go back to Heraclitus and follow it through the way, way we've done tonight, that it's really this obsession of doing away with reality, that it's, it's, a, it's a kind of iconoclasm of, of what is, that if we can kind of do away with what is, we will force this perfectible society on us all. Uh, it's kind of interesting is that if you follow the scholastics through, they end up with a guy by the name of Francis Bacon. 
and I always get my Rogers and my Francis's mixed up. <laughs> but Francis Bacon <laughs> ends up being the first to predict this utopian society based entirely on a mathematical, engineered, scientific, perfect worldview. But ultimately, as we do today, it makes absolutes obsolete. They, they don't, so you end up with Marxism and everything else as an apology. It, I, I think a lot of these groups from Marxism to whatever you have is kind of what, how do we construct a society once we've decided to kill off God? Yeah, because you don't have a moral compass. And then you don't have a moral compass. you got to replace it, avoid with something. And so then it becomes this, uh, I had a term, well, uh, moral relativism, where there is no right or wrong, no truth or lies, no, you know, I mean, to them, there's not even hot or cold at that point. You know, you can't you can't distinguish anything, uh, you know, and going back to Aldous Huxley and who is that other guy? Uh, uh, I'm going to look up something here I want to refer to. So go ahead for a uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti. Yeah. If I can find him in the data, oh, wrong database. Uh, let's see. So Jiddu Krishnamurti had a, had a, Thing and he was who the left wanted to promote as the new messiah at one point, uh, as exposed by. Uh, well, that's all through the, the tree stemming from Madame Blavatsky and. Right, and then, uh, oh come on, why can't I think of her name that I had on uh, recently? Constance. Uh, Cumby. Uh, yeah, Cumby, but uh, knowledge, and this is a quote by Jiddu Krishnamurti. Knowledge helping man to ascend seems so utterly nonsense to me. And then you get uh, his pal, uh, Aldous Huxley, writing The Doors of Perception, saying, shut off your five senses, don't seek knowledge, take handfuls of LSD or mescaline, and go inside your mind, and that's how you discover truth and knowledge, by being high out of your mind. Well, that's that's where you get your solipsism from. Exactly. The it's interesting to me two two other points. Uh, we always think as Stephen Hawking as the the premier physicist of of the 20th century, 21st century. The real probably the real premier physicist is a guy by the name of George Ellis. And science lives under this kind of facade that the next discoveries around the corner that will be vindicated by the next discovery or the next theory of. But George, there's a very interesting video, if you want to look it up, on the end of this style of physics that we, oddly enough, one of the things Galileo said is that nonetheless, the earth moves. We thought that was a closed case at the time of Galileo, and that's what they teach in schools. But the fact of the matter is nobody had figured out a way of actually determining if the earth moved scientifically until very recently. And the process was started with a group, a couple of guys named Mickelson and Morley, where they started building a platform to detect earth's motion. It be, the, the, the experiment became kind of null. So they decided 
that each generation they would try this, they would build a bigger platform. At one time they used the underground at uh, the University of Chicago. Uh, one guy tried to use it using the internet of I think entire of Norway. And they keep building these cyclotrons bigger and bigger and bigger. George Ellis finally came to the conclusion, the only way you'd be able to test it is to build a platform bigger than the solar system and you would have nothing to set it on. <laughs> and it's so, you can look it up. He's, it's a very interesting video. But he's saying, oddly enough, when he came up to these conclusions, he turned to Christianity and became a Christian because he said that, that the absurdity of modern physics has gotten to, to the point where it, it doesn't prove anything anymore. Correct. Uh, you, you look at relativity, every, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on relativity and physics and things like, but you look at relativity every fighter plane made has a compass in it that runs on what's supposedly relativistic uh, gyroscope called a Zagnac device. But if you actually look up the device, it, it actually proves that the speed of light is not a constant. There's also, uh, I think his name is Edward Dowdy, is a physicist for NASA and, and the main, the main experiment in 19, I believe it was 1928 that supposedly proved Einstein right is that there was gravitational fields could bend light as the light went around the sun from from a star showed that that wasn't true at all that it was actually the the uh, plasma around the, the sun that bent it not the gravitational now I'm sure other people are going to argue with me on this but the point of the matter is there are alternate points of view that are that are you can't really determine which one's right or wrong. Nobody can go in there and say, yeah, we've killed this off. That's, they haven't. It doesn't work that way. So, uh, all right. So where is humanity going from here with all of this uh, denial well, of, of reality? We've been here before. Um, I don't know. I don't know that we've entered a phase that's unlike any of the other phases. It's clearly a serious phase. Um, I think for myself, and I haven't said really this because to anybody, because I'm still researching it. I think even physics to a large degree, science, uh, psychology has gotten some basic things wrong. And if I might speculate a little bit, and I haven't thought these things well through yet. About a hundred years after Newton did his, uh, if you, I can hold up here, I'm, I'm experimenting with prisms and things like that. Um, the scientist, poet, writer, Wolfgang Goethe, about a hundred years after Newton said he speculated that Newton had falsified his proof on, on light, his theory of light. That when, when Goethe looked through the prism, he had found other things that Newton wasn't accounting for. Correct. Newton, Newton had looked at light and said it just refracted and produced all these colors. Goethe went home and tried to conduct the experiments and none of them work and realized that what produced the colors wasn't the prism, but the pinhole that Newton was projecting onto the prism. So we end up with this oddball argument, I think. And I think we have to pr probably pr push 
philosophy to a new stage. And that stage is that we, we kind of think of, and you've probably heard of the right brain and the left brain. Sure, who is that? I have his uh, book, The Bicameral Mind Guy. Right, but we're, I think we're kind of getting that wrong because we look at one side of being the creative mind and the other side being the, the steadfast mathematical mind. But if you look at the analogy, I think that goes all the way back to Genesis and I think is in, in the New Testament and certainly with Euripides and things, it's always this, this idea of the emotional mind being represented by the horse and the intellectual mind being the rider that, that rides the two. And I think what the evidence is going to start beginning to show is that the, the bicameral mind isn't the male side against the woman side. It's not the, the reasoning side against the emotional side that really, or creative side. I think what you're going to see is a revisioning of what that means. And that I think the one mind represents reason and it, it's almost like the mind in itself, I think it has a bit of a psychosis involved that you got, that needs to be united. Right. And it seems, and it seems to me when the right mind, and this goes back to Robert Gross tests, actually, he, it he would be, it would be the uh, unification of the IQ with the EQ, so to speak. Right. And that's where you get your aha moment when the two brains collide and say, wow, we both, we, we understand each other. Right. And I think what you're going to find is that's the window, the open window here that we have to kind of uh, go through to, to, to re-envision. Maybe we missed something in Christianity. Maybe we missed something in philosophy that in reading Grotesque, he's clearly speculating about that this envisioning of the horse and the rider, as we would call it, has to do with a kind of a... Uh, aha, let's just call it the aha moment when we when we see when logos unites our minds and our minds are no longer working in discord now they're working in harmony and we begin to see see what things really are and how they are i think what you're seeing in this obsession with purity is this idea to kill off the reasoning mind in favor of this uni, unicameral mind that only experiences and that's it and that mind is obsessed with cleaning things up and, and seeing things only in its purity. Jonathan says, One-eyed robot is king in the valley of drones, new earth, new hive, waking up to the brave new world, terraforming and transforming the chrysalis. <laughs> I, I, I think that's... I, I, I'm being somewhat inspired by reading Robert Gross test because now you can see science in a whole different light. It's not trying to undo science, is that we've missed a dimension of science because we've downplayed it for a thousand years. If we can reunite that back again, and I think we're, we're on the verge of doing that certain, you know, in the 60s, Heidegger was big. If you want to look at any of this up, I would, there, there's some very clever uh, informative videos by a, a philosopher named Henry Bartoft. Uh, trying to explain how Goethe got mistranslated in the 60s by the 60s revolutionary and Marxist crowd, that they're really, Goethe wasn't trying to undo Aristotle, he was trying to find a new path to Aristotle that, that sort of did justice to all the different uh, levels of being and le levels of understanding. 
And he speculated that a lot of this was a miscomprehension and a misselling of what these, these philosophers were really up to. And what I envision is somehow, at some point, we're going to recapture and revindicate Christian tradition by looking at per perhaps a new way that really is an old way. Well said. We have about eight minutes here. Is there any, uh, did you have anything you want to add? Should we field some uh, questions from the audience who has them? Uh, I would like to at some point, there's not enough room tonight, but I'd like to maybe prod people's that I think there's a whole topic here underneath about the, the, the Holy Grail and the Shroud of Turin that makes this all interesting. Not for tonight, but maybe for an, a future episode. Well, why don't you prod them for a minute? You want to give a few little uh, tidbits? Well, I, it, the, the best way I think you can learn Logos is not really as a philosophy, but as, as it plays out in different fields. Uh, what, I, what really the crusade against the, the Orthodox Church was that they had all the icons, they had all the relics, all the different things of Christianity, but the emperor of Constantinople had been driven out and he begged the Catholic Church to reinstall him. So the Catholic Church basically did a, a left turn with their crusade and marched it against uh, the people in Constantinople to put the emperor back. Once the emperor was put back, he refused to pay the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church put the Constantinople under siege. The only way he was able to get out of that was to, to base to give them all the, the uh, relics of Christianity. One relic that didn't make it was the Shroud of Turin, and which some scholars believe ends up with the Cathars. And now you get the whole inquisition and you get a real, very real interesting story with the speculation, was the Shroud of Turin the Holy Grail? I'll leave it with that. <laughs> Shanti says Newton believed there was an outside. Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem with all this is not that Newton was entirely wrong. He had his own motives and and he just like I said, he was he was padding his own case and ignoring the other half of the case. MK says Cathars are cringe. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it ties into the whole Gnostic, Zoroastrian, uh, uh, what's the other group? Why? Manichaeans? Uh, no, up the chain of uh, Islam. Um, Sufis? Yeah, thank you, the Sufis, the Sophists, you know, the, the, the master liars. And uh, them pre pretending that they're way down on the... On the uh, Islamic ladder when they're way up at the top of it all. But well, there's an there's an argument to be made there that most people don't see. Uh, who was Judas Iscariot? Well, let's go into your theory about it for a few minutes. Well, a lot of scholars insist that the, the label is wrong in the Bible, that it's really Judas Iscariot from the knife. Right. Sikari was a knife. Right. And so if it was a knife, we think of Islam as being brought in 
with Muhammad, but actually Islam goes all the way back uh, in the Bible even to, to what was called the Sarazims. And so you see a group emerging at the time of Christ, which were really terrorists. You end up with, I forget his, his Muslim name, but a guy called the old man of the mountain. And underneath, underneath is the slogan, nothing is true, uh, therefore nothing is forbidden. Uh, and it's kind of the whole, what we're into now, if nothing is true, then nothing's forbidden. Uh, there, there's, as, if, if I'm right, I think I remember that there, one of their amulets was just a big zero. It's, it's, you can, if, if nothing's true, do what you will. Well, exactly right, which <clears throat> brings us back to Aleister Crowley and, again, Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary, who said he was continuing on much of the work that Aleister Crowley had done a century before him. Right. And, and their whole premise is, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law, or I always called it the whole in the law. Right. And... Um, this, you know, in our series on Islam, we showed that uh, Muslims worship will rather than logos. So they follow the train of thought of do it thou wilt, more to speak. And then when you get into the Islamic text, there's a lot more, you know, uh, dark stuff there, like uh, some of the texts concluding that their paradise is they get a glass of wine and young boys and girls and you know well it's the twofold truth it's that faith and, and reason are, are really in jihad with each other and couldn't we call this uh what gregory bateson called the double bind uh i'm not familiar with that but i i it, it's the idea that you it again what the catholics call the egocentric predicament can how do you explain my imperfect vision with a reality that is that exists? And how do I, how is communication possible if I have to, you know, how do we both see the same world? And what, what happens is you end up with experiments of specifically by Goethe trying to show, can we save the appearances? Can we save, is my red your red? They would say no. Goethe would say it is. Right. Well, and then it's like, okay, well, if we point at something that's red, it is. And then it goes back to a contradiction is always a lie or an error. And then they would say, well, how do you know your, your uh, taste of chicken is the same as my taste of chicken, you know? But, and and but it gets into this, it gets into this nonsense argument. When somebody eats chicken, they know they're eating chicken. And I, I'm not there yet, but I still think if you follow realizing the, the history of science was purposely trying to condemn this other point of view that they left that data and restructure that data. I, I do think there's philosophical work to be done that if you, if you believe again, watch the Henry Bartoff series on, on YouTube, that the whole idea is yes, we can. There, there's little experiments that Goethe did that seem to justify the idea that appearances do mean something. And I, th I think some work could be done on that. I think if somebody was able to, to see that through and see that, you know, perhaps even seeing Christianity as an attempt to unify the left mind and the right mind, uh, 
a lot of, I, I, I recently read Bartos book and I, I don't pick up the fact that he's very, if he is a Christian, it's, it, he doesn't mention or anything, but the, the book sounds very Eucharistic to me. Interesting. So, yeah. Another, let me, let me, let me qualify that sure. a little bit. Um, part of his theory is that you don't, you look, you look at a rose and the rose, what Goethe had predicted was that you don't have a petal, you don't have a stem, you don't have a leaf, you have a one leafy uh, petal uh, stemmy type of thing that under certain circumstances evolves into a leaf, evolves into a petal, evolves into a stem. And so it seems to me, speaking from a Eucharistic point of view, if you go to, to communion, have the body of Christ, one guy isn't getting the arm, another guy isn't getting the throat, another guy's not getting the big toe. Is it's that understood. like the three blind mice? <laughs> one's, yeah, or, one's, one's feeling the tail, one's feeling the body, and one's feeling the trunk? Yeah, yeah. or the, the Indians feeling the elephant, yeah. But yeah, I, yeah. I, think, I think underneath, though, is some oddball, you know, if we got a few minutes here, okay. that Goethe did this experiment where you take two lights, and cast a shadow on an object. One object is a green light and one's just a white light. So you, you, you cast the green light on one side of the object and it produces a gray shadow. You cast the white light on it now and all of a sudden the shadow turns this kind of magenta color. Now, if you, if you go close to it, even on a camera picks this up, but if you go close to the, the, the subject, you can see it's not really magenta. It's really gray. It only looks magenta to us as we back off. So the oddity about this is all right, we're producing that magenta in our mind, but we're all producing the same magenta. Right. How is it? Exactly. Is it? Well, you know, I don't know. I could theorize we're all made in God's image. Well, I, yeah. And I'm going to, what I'm going to say. I'm going to, there's a famous astronomer that was, that questioned this all the way back, his name is Sir Fred Hoyle. He seems to think that our society is always based on a bunch of errors and, until one person comes along with the one fact that doesn't fit. And once that fact's discovered, then everybody's got to swallow crow and turn around and stuff. Somebody somewhere, I think, is going to find that one fact. And maybe it'll be us tonight or tomorrow night or whoever you interview. But somewhere there's going to be that uncomfortable fact that's going to make them say, well, I guess we were wrong. Yeah, well, I haven't ever uh, eaten crow. I've eaten fresh killed duck and dove and quail and things like that. But I haven't, you know, ever eaten crow. There is a, a very large raven living in the tree across from my house maybe i could uh go see if crow tastes as bad or raven tastes as bad as they say <laughs> well i, I mean you know, speaking for you don't you aren't you sort of in the quest to find that one fact that maybe turns the tide of all this well <clears throat> yeah you know i mean isn't that sort of what motivates you yeah, exactly. Well, that's how I started the show was originally promoting psychedelics and then doing so much research, I realized the whole thing was you... a scam and then came out exposing all of those little tidbits and facts that I had 
but somewhere you had that epiphany moment. Somewhere you had that moment where these facts don't quite line up. Right. When when I realized that a contradiction was a lie or an error, and here I was working with, what, at the time, 65 or so uh, professors and researchers in psychedelics and ethnobotany, et cetera, and I realized, wait a second, you know, everybody got the memo but me. Well, and the, the real kickoff was when I published my article, Gordon Wasson, The Man, The Legend, The Myth, and it was all based on primary documentation and heavily cited. And, uh, you know, in, in, what, January 2009 or something, I had gotten a letter from Purdue University saying I was a significant scholar in psychedelic research and they wanted to house all of my research forever and blowing smoke all of this kind of stuff in the in the right places, and I bought into that. So when I published this article on Gordon Wasson, I figured they were going to pat me on the back and say, good research, you found all of this documentation nobody else in the field had for the last 65 years, and good job. And instead, the entire field of ethnobotany and ethnomycology, etc., turned and attacked me all in chorus. And I was only focused on Gordon Wasson, and then what happened, because the attacks were so uniform and in chorus, that forced me to begin to look at the entire rest of the field. You know, if they had just left it alone and said, good job on Wasson, I would have only stayed focused on Wasson. But the attacks actually forced me to go out and begin, you know, begin researching the rest of them. And so then I started fact-checking everybody and digging down to the primaries and going, oh, you're into it. You know, it came down to two possibilities. Either these researchers were incompetent or they were complicit. You had an agenda. Yeah. So it didn't matter. It, you know, either way, they were full of crud because they were either incompetent or complicit. And, right. and the more primary citations I exposed and the, the more I wrote on it and the more shows I did on this stuff, the more attacks came. Not once has anyone in the entire field of ethnobotany or ethnomycology ever addressed any of my citations. It became ad hominem attacks, appeals to ridicule, right. and trying to get me back into line, you know? Right. You know, hey, yeah. hey, you went off the official narrative. Uh, you're not supposed to uh to do that somebody brought up you know joe rogan in the chat chip did remember when you went on joe rogan and he and red band shut you down so that they could tell dick dick jokes for two hours that's exactly what happened and before then joe rogan and i had been friends for eight years so mm -hmm. up until i left his place that day and walked out of the studio that was the last moment i ever wanted to be friends with the guy and my show up until last year with uh outram and his gdl people the only time my show had ever been shut down my channel gotten dinged or anything was because of joe rogan you know when i published my own interview with joe rogan i got a copyright strike for my own interview and my channel was taken down for a month <laughs> i had permission to publish my interview with joe rogan from his show from his jre show and my channel got shut down when I had permission for a month. You know, so all of these guys, uh, you know, it, 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 all of this stuff centered around him and these, and these people. And it was just such a, you know, such a ridiculous scandal 
But they, you know, essentially Rogan took my early work and ran with it and became the, the poster boy for psychedelic drugs. And when I came out exposing all of that and turned against my own earlier work, nobody liked any of that. You know, I was supposed to, if I had stayed promoting that stuff, I would probably still be one of the 10 biggest podcasts in the world. But as soon as I did a 180 and came out against it because of the research I had done, uh, you know, they've done everything since then to throttle my account, shut me down, defame me, et cetera. You know, it's like a little bit ago, some of these GDL clowns were in the uh, uh, comments trying to, uh, you know, and they were thumbing down the show. It had like one thumbs up and 30 some thumbs down from these GDL people. And it's always the same couple groups of people that do it, but they're all paid shills, you know, and they're all little uh, neo-Nazis, et cetera. Money. Yep, follow the money, neo-Nazis on the on the teat of socialism. But yeah, uh, let me, Allow me to regress just a little bit. And when I first started talking to you, I said my, my real goal was to discover what the epiphany moment was. What was that uh, aha moment? And <clears throat> if, if the, I, whoever's listening, look up on YouTube, Goethe's color theory and look up on Henry Bartoff. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna steal from him a little bit here. All right. But he takes Galileo, for instance, he says, one of the big problems with Galileo, we've completely misinterpreted what the big moment was there. And it wasn't dropping balls off the, off the leaning tower of pizza. It wasn't the, uh, you know, deciding that the solar centricity and stuff. He says, the real big point, if you really look at uh, Starry Messenger and things like that, he said, the real thing is he looked, other people had telescopes. But he looked at the moon and saw something nobody else had seen before. To him, it was almost like an optical illusion. Everybody else saw it as, but Galileo, when he looked through the telescope, saw mountains. And he saw mountains from the top down, which nobody had on the earth had ever seen before. And so nobody, nobody saw that. Henry Bartok sort of likens it to, to us looking at uh, an optical illusion. He shows a picture of Christ where you look at it and you can't tell what it is. And once somebody says, oh, it's a picture of Christ, it just pops into your mind. What happened to Galileo in all this describing, most of the stuff is describing how the moon would look from above as if it was an earth lying flat and what the earth would look like if we were looking at, at it from above. But all of a sudden there was this aha moment. And I think that aha moment was this uniting of the sort of, as we spoke about, the left brain with the right brain. I think buried underneath, because there's too many things that I've discovered in Christianity that have to do with this right brain, left brain, uh, Adam versus Eve, uh, Christians versus the Pharisees, that all uh, Euripides and the Bacchae, somewhere Christianity could not have missed this point without speaking on it. I, I think it's central to the Christian discussion, but has been missed by almost every scholar. And I think what's going to happen, whether it's me or somebody else, and I'm just putting it out there, somebody's going to figure this out. And I think you're going to figure, find that will shift the scales from all this seeing philosophy as depravity and morality just having no end into something that actually has scientific merit again. So. Well said. Well, you know, I think 
the moment when I had that epiphany that something was wrong, there was I was in a bookstore, a used bookstore in Chico, California, and I was flipping through some uh, a series of history books, and there was a painting by a Russian painter by the name of Ivan Bilibin. And he, in this painting from the 1890s, was showing psilocybe and amanita mushrooms in one painting. Well, you know, that didn't jive with the official historical narrative from Wasson and Professor Carl Ruck and all of these guys. And, you know, I just immediately went, aha, you know, something hit me. And that's when I, that was the moment I began questioning the entire field, you know. My, I would say my moment came, I told you I bought that book on Galileo, on Robert Bellarmine that from the 1600s. I didn't know what to make of it, but I was trying to find research on it. I found a book published by Oxford University Press. Uh, I think it was called The History of Adam and Thought. And I was at a Barnes and Noble and I looked at the book and put it down and I was kind of shying away from this whole discussion because I knew it would take up my whole life figuring it out. <laughs> And I put the book back on the shelf. My wife was walking by and the book literally jumped off the shelf. My, both of us looked at said, what, what's that? And it she literally, said, just, literally it jumped. Just, it just, just jumped off the shelf and landed on the floor. <laughs> and my wife said, I think you're supposed to buy that book. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So no. I bought the book and that's what, you know, there I are. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I wonder if I have Ivan Bilibin in the database. Let me see here. Let me just check really quickly. Yep, there he is. Ivan Bilibin. Yeah, I'm going to show that image here. So here we go. <clears throat> so this was the image I found in the, uh, or images I found in the uh, Chico bookstore. And uh, these, you know, along the side here, you have Amanita and Psilocybe mushrooms. And... Uh, that supposedly wasn't possible uh, at the time. Actually, it was this image here. And uh, so that was the, my big aha moment. But uh, there it is right there. Thanks, Ivan Bilibin. But well, I mean, uh, you have other aha moments like that all around. You have. Well, sure. But that was have, that was the one that made me question the. Open you up uh, to the possibility the, the, of the, the official historical narrative of the entire field of ethnomycology. Right. Right, but once you have that aha moment, now you're open to having more aha moments. Yeah, and and so life sort of becomes an aha moment in general, and you you start living a life. I think where life is sort of charmed with discoveries that you don't have before you you, you get that. Um, it, it's it's that inconsistency. There was a there was an astronomer. I can't think of his name right now, but he worked for Mount Palomar Observatory, and everybody had been following Hubble's idea that redshifts determine the size of the universe. That something with a high redshift is distant and some with a, with a low redshift is, is close. Well, he found this, this object that had both high and low redshift components in the same object. And he said, well, now what are you gonna do? Yeah. And it, it's that same kind of aha, something's not all right with what's going on here. We can't explain these things away that easily. We can't we can't explain away truth by just being allowing contradictions. Yeah, well, and isn't that the truth? 
<laughs> there you go. We should stop there. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for taking the time to join us again. And uh, thanks to uh, those of you in the Super Chat, uh, Paul and uh, uh, MK, who threw up Super Chats. Much appreciated. Uh, Paul stated, this channel is criminally underrated. Well, that's because I've been shadow banned for years. And uh, MK says, thanks for the great work. And he put great work in lowercase. So thanks for not using a hermetic... Uh, masonic reference there and uh otherwise if it was in uppercase i would have had to question that and uh, again thanks to everybody who supported the show during the week logosmedia.com hit the like and subscribe make sure you hit the bell button to uh, get notifications if you don't get notifications regularly you might want to uh click and unclick the or, or unclick and click the bell again to see if you're getting the notifications because for 66,000 subscribers on this channel, and they haven't let the channel grow or shrink for a full year. It stayed almost right at the same number for a full year, which nothing to see here, folks. But uh, make sure you get the notifications that way. Uh, you can also donate to Patreon, Cash App. I should probably get Zelle up there. And there's a, uh, a Bitcoin address up there for people who prefer to donate via Bitcoin. And uh, I appreciate all the uh, love and support out there. Have a great night, everybody, and see you next week. Um, soon I'm going to try to have Pam, uh, shoot, what's her name? Pam Popper on to from uh, wellnessforumhealth.com to hopefully talk about her recent research on masks and the whole mask debating this issue and uh more and more research coming out uh, she discusses uh some research that came out that showed that uh, open heart surgeries at all actually went uh infections during open heart surgeries at all actually went down one percent in official studies when surgeons did not wear masks out of 1551 studies versus uh uh, surgeries, open-heart surgeries that were done with masks, but it, actually the number of infections dropped without the masks, and she shows a number of other studies. I've got a bunch of uh, published studies somewhere as well on that issue, so hopefully we'll get into that topic soon. And uh, so I hope that to be next. We'll see. Maybe I'll try to get Beverly Beatty on again since that fell through. And uh, we will talk to you again soon, everybody. Have a great night and see you next time.